So today, uh, my name's Norton, by the way. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here, if you're new or visiting. Um, and today we're kicking off a new uh, sermon series uh, for the month of July. And there are a couple of unique uh, and interesting things about this sermon series. Um, for starters, I'll talk about the topic in just a second. Um, but you can probably see from up there, um, it's called a shared summer series or a shared sermon series. And that's because during the month of July, for the last several years, um, we have participated in this shared series with a bunch of other churches in the city of Denver. Essentially, we came together with uh, other pastors and we said, hey, what if we all did something together? It can be something really small, like doing a sermon series together, where during the month of July, we're going to talk about the same things and think about and study the same things in all of our churches. But we hope that as we do it together, it's a sign. It's a sign that we're a part of something bigger. It's a sign that when we gather here on Sunday mornings, we're not the only people gathered uh, in the city of Denver, but there's people all across the city gathered in all kinds of different churches that worship God, maybe in different ways, and yet we're all part of the same body, and we're all part of the same mission, and we're all part of the same kingdom and what God is doing um, here in Denver. Uh, so for the next month, for the next four weeks, as we go through this series and we just sort of mention at the beginning, this is our shared series, we hope that you'll remember Remember that we're a part of something um, bigger. Uh, in fact, um, this week I'm going to kick things off. Uh, next week, um, Johan Luque, who's a pastor at Westside Church International, many of you know Mambo, who's a pastor there, and he's preached here before. Well, Johan, who's also a pastor, he's going to be preaching next Sunday, uh, and then I'll preach the third week. And then Roy Johnson who's the pastor at Cherry Creek Baptist Church, which also meets here in this building at 11 a.m., um, he's gonna be preaching. So also, we hope that that will be a reminder that we're part uh, of something bigger. So that's the shared series part. Um, the other aspect of this series is the topic. Um, now, let me ask a question. Uh, who knows what the longest book in the Bible is in terms of how many words are in it? Does anyone know? Anyone know? Come on, come on now. Yeah, what is it? No, the longest book of the Bible. The longest book of the Bible. Who, who knows what the longest book of the Bible is? What is it? She's elbowing you. You have to answer. It's not Psalms. You're totally wrong. That's a, you knew I was like setting you up, didn't you? You know me well enough. It's not Psalms. Okay, so what's the second longest book of the Bible? Nope. Uh, Psalms is the third longest book. Uh, Jeremiah is the longest book of the Bible. Genesis is the second. And Psalms is a very close uh, third. But Psalms is probably the most unique book in the Bible. It does have more chapters than any other book of the Bible. And it has more authors. And that's because it's basically a book of songs. Or it's a book of prayers. Or it's the lyrics to those songs or to those prayers, and they were sung over and over and over by the Hebrew people whenever they gathered to worship and pray. Now, let me tell you about some of these authors. Let me give you a quick list. We'll put this up on the screen. Um, 74 of the Psalms are attributed to David. So he's the most well-known author, but there's 150 Psalms. So if you could do your math real quick, you would see he's not even written the majority of the Psalms. The majority are written uh, by someone else. So 74 are attributed to David, 12 are attributed to someone named Asaph, 11 are attributed to the sons of Korah, 2 are attributed to Solomon, 3 are attributed to three other individuals, and then 48 are anonymous. There's no heading or no indication about who wrote uh, them. So in this series, we're going to focus on the second most prolific author of the Psalms. We're going to look at the songs 
of Asaph. David gets a ton of attention when we think about the Psalms, but for the next four weeks, we're going to look at Asaph's Psalms. He wrote Psalm 50 and then Psalm 73 through 83. We're not going to have time to go through all 12 of his Psalms, but each of the next four weeks, we'll look at one of the Psalms he wrote. And we'll step back and ask the question what's unique about this guy named Asaph? And what's interesting or unique or helpful about the actual songs? That he wrote. And let me just say this um, you might be sitting there right now thinking, this is gonna be really boring, right? You've never heard of this guy named Asaph. It's from the Old Testament. It just it sounds like it could be really boring, and it sounds like it could be totally irrelevant to your life. And I hope to show you that it's not gonna be boring, that actually this guy named Asaph is super interesting, and that some of the things that he wrote in his songs are really different than the things we get in a bunch of the other songs, and they're actually relevant to your life and to the things that you face every single day, and to the things you face wherever you are in your journey of faith, whether you're sort of new to church or you're coming back to church or you've been going to church your entire life, that what he has to say can challenge, I think, all of us in a unique way this morning. So um, let's jump in. Uh, This is how Psalm 50, we're going to look at Psalm 50 today, Um, and this is how it starts. Um, It starts with a subheading. If you were to read in a Hebrew Bible, it would just say 50, and then it would start with a subheading, a Psalm of Asaph, a Psalm of Asaph. And that subheading can actually mean a few different things. It could mean a Psalm that's written by Asaph, this guy named Asaph, I'll tell you about him in a second. It could mean a psalm that's written in, uh, for Asaph. It could mean a psalm that's written in honor of Asaph. Or it could even mean a psalm written in the tradition or the style, maybe even the musical style or genre of Asaph. So it could really mean all those things, and we don't know for certain, which means if it's one of those lower options, it's not actually written by Asaph, and it's the same with all the Psalms of David, when it just says a Psalm of David. We don't know for certain. Now, there are some indications with that sort of disclaimer first. There are some indications in these specific Psalms that they probably were written by this guy named Asaph, or they were at least heavily influenced by him. Um, so for the rest of the series, we'll just talk about Asaph as the author of these Psalms, but know that sort of backstory um, as we move forward. Now, who is Asaph? Uh, Asaph is first mentioned in the book of First Chronicles. Um, now, First Chronicles is a, is a historical book in the Old Testament, and it really follows this guy named David. Uh, David is the second king of Israel. He's the most famous king of Israel. He's the one who really unites the 12 tribes into one nation. He rules for 40 years. He's the one who attacks this city that's called Jerusalem and then turns the city of Jerusalem into the capital for the entire nation. Um, and, and in First Chronicles, it sort of goes through his story. And in chapter 15 of First Chronicles, it tells the part where he brings the worship and the rituals all together in the capital city of Jerusalem. And this is where the people are going to gather for their national gatherings and their national rituals. And so David is beginning to set up all of these patterns and these habits. And here's what it says in First Chronicles 15. David told the leaders of the Levites, the Levites were one of the 12 tribes and they were the ones in charge of all the priestly duties. David told the leaders of the Levites to appoint their fellow Levites as musicians to make a joyful sound with musical instruments, lyres, which were kind of like guitars, um, harps and cymbals, Um, no pianos. Sorry, Ann, I know, it's tragic. Um, So the Levites appointed Heman, son of Joel, 
And from his relatives, Asaph, son of Berechiah, and from their relatives, the Merarites, Ethan, son of Cushiah, and with them, their relatives, next in rank, and then it goes on, and there's this long list of all of these people appointed. And then it concludes by saying, the musicians Heman, Asaph, and Ethan were to sound the bronze cymbals, and then it tells what everyone else is supposed to do, and then it concludes by saying, and Kenaniah, the head Levite, was in charge of the singing. That was his responsibility because he was skillful at it. So David is basically putting the band together, right? He's, he's, he's organizing the band, you know? He's, he's looking for different people who are skilled. Asaph, you're going to be on percussion and cymbals, right? Because you're good at that. Eliab, you're going to play the harp. You know, Azariah, you're going to play the lyre. And Kenaniah, you're on lead vocals, right? You're going to lead this whole thing off. But what, here's what you need to understand. This is not just putting the band together for a small worship service. These are the guys that are going to be responsible for leading the national gatherings, the most important gatherings when all of the people from all of the tribes are coming to Jerusalem to celebrate the high holidays, to celebrate Sabbath, to celebrate the daily rituals. These are the people that are going to be in charge of all of that. This was a really important position. I mean, this was up there with the the military captains and commanders and sort of the cabinet or government officials. These people, because of the way that they related to God and the way that Israel saw their rituals and their worship of God, these people who were going to be leading these rituals were front and center. It was extremely important. And apparently, out of all of the Levites, there were thousands of Levites, There was a handful of them that were really good at playing the bronze cymbals. And Asaph was one of them. And so he was selected to be a part of this group of people that would lead all of the rituals. But here's what happens in the very next chapter of 1 Chronicles. And we don't know if this is just a couple of days later or a couple of weeks later, but as David is establishing these rituals, they decide to bring the ark which is the Ark of the Covenant, which is really important. They decide to bring it into Jerusalem, and there's this massive ceremony that happens, and here's what it says in 1 Chronicles 16. David appointed some of the Levites to minister before the Ark of the Lord to extol, thank, and praise the Lord, the God of Israel. Asaph was the chief, which in Hebrew, that word means leader. First, the person standing up front the person directing everyone else. And that day, David first appointed Asaph and his associates to give praise to the Lord in this manner. And then it describes a whole bunch of details about what that manner was. And then it concludes by saying, David left Asaph and his associates before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to minister there regularly according to each day's requirements. So somehow, Asaph has moved from the symbols to leading the whole thing. And we don't know what happened. We don't know what happened to Kenaniah, right? I mean, what? I don't know. Maybe he left the band. We're not really sure. But in a matter of days or a matter of weeks, Asaph becomes the leader. Asaph's in charge. And from now on, it's this group of people that are leading all the rituals. They're called Asaph and his associates. And in the years that follow, Asaph leads all of the worship and all of the rituals at the temple area or the tabernacle there in Jerusalem. And Asaph would leave a significant 
legacy. 40 years later, King Solomon, who's David's son, builds and dedicates this massive temple, and Asaph is the one who's still leading the music and the worship. Before he dies, Asaph teaches his sons how to play the cymbals and how to play music and how to lead worship. And when he's gone, they're the ones that take over. And that legacy is passed generation to generation so that it becomes known as the sons of Asaph. The descendants of Asaph are the ones who are leading the rituals at the temple. In fact, 300 years later, King Hezekiah, who's another famous king in Israel's life, is still talking about Asaph and his influence. In fact, at one of Hezekiah's national gatherings, he gathers everyone together and he orders the Levites to use the songs of David and the songs of Asaph in their worship. And we don't know if this is when the book of Psalms is beginning to be collected. They're collecting these Psalms that are mostly written by David and Asaph. But apparently for King Hezekiah, the songs that Asaph wrote were just as important as the songs that David wrote. And those are going to be the ones that we use. And so now we learn a new detail about Asaph. He wasn't just the worship leader. He was a song writer because the songs that he wrote are being used. We also learn another detail because it says we're going to use the words of David and of Asaph the seer. And the word seer is like the word prophet. He wasn't an actual official prophet, but apparently the songs that Asaph wrote and the way that he led worship had a prophetic quality to it. He, He could see things. That's what seer is. It's someone who can see things, as we've talked about Amos in the last few weeks, somebody who sees things that other people don't see, someone who imagines a reality and what God wants to do in a way that other people can't imagine and then leads the people to see those things. And apparently Asaph could do that through his leading of worship and through the songs that he wrote. 400 years after Asaph, another king named Josiah, is still talking about following in all of the patterns and all of the rituals that Asaph had established and singing the songs that he had written. 600 years later, Jerusalem is destroyed. The nation is destroyed. The people are sent into exile into Babylon. They finally return back to Israel and under the leadership of a guy named Nehemiah, they begin to rebuild the city and rebuild the temple. And do you know who Nehemiah sets up to lead all of the worship? The sons of Asaph are called on one more time. And then, a thousand years after Asaph, a Jewish rabbi named Jesus, on two different occasions, quotes words from songs that Asaph wrote. You see, his legacy endures for a thousand years. So much so that what many people would call the greatest teacher of all time thought that some of the things that he wrote were important enough to quote and use in his teaching to pass on to other people. And all this from a guy who started out just playing the cymbals, right? And if you step back and think about this for a second, I think there's something we can learn from Asaph's backstory. And it's simply this, that God uses really, really ordinary people to do extraordinary things. And that sounds really cliche, right? You've probably seen that on a calendar somewhere. God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. But Asaph's life is a testament to this. 
mean, he was the guy who basically just raised his hand. He's like, I can play the cymbals, right? Like, I, I mean, I'm, I, I've played for a little while and I can do that okay. He's the guy that raises his hand and basically says, hey, I can come in and set up chairs early. Hey, hey I like to take care of babies. I can take care of people's babies while they do other things. Hey, hey, I like to build things. Do you need help having anything built? I like to organize things. Are there any events that anybody needs some help organizing? I just like to serve. Is there something that I can do with my hands? He's just the guy who raises his hand and volunteers. And this isn't about volunteering in church. This is about God using somebody who takes their really ordinary seeming gift, right? To just play the cymbals. He takes this, the, their ordinary time, their ordinary talent, and their ordinary energy, and he builds this legacy that impacts generation after generation for a thousand years. And here we are, 3,000 years later, reading the words that he wrote. And so the question is do you believe this morning that God can use really ordinary people? To leave an extraordinary legacy? Could God use you to leave a legacy that would still make an impact a thousand years later? I don't believe that. I'm trying to figure out if the things I do will matter in a week or two, right? Do we really believe that God can take our ordinary time, our ordinary talent, our ordinary energy, our ordinary effort, and he can do something extraordinary? He did that with Asaph. Now, I want to read a few of the words he wrote this morning. Let's jump into Psalm 50 and see what made Asaph so unique and so meaningful and so extraordinary. This is how Psalm 50 starts. It says, The mighty one, God, the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to where it sets. From Zion, which was Jerusalem, perfect in its beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes and he will not be silent. Fire devours before him and around him a tempest rages. He summons the heavens above and the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me this consecrated people. This is God speaking now. Who made a covenant with me by sacrifice and the heavens proclaim his righteousness for he is a God of justice. Now, if you just flipped open a Bible and just read that passage and you didn't look at the top to see where it was in the Bible, where do you think this would be? Who does this sound like? What kind of writing does this sound like? It sounds like a prophet, doesn't it? Right? God is speaking and there's a fire raging and he's a God of justice. I mean, this sounds a whole lot like Amos that we've been reading. Right? And now you can see this prophetic quality that Asaph had. Now you can see why he was called a seer. Because he saw things and he was trying to communicate things that people would sing when they worshiped together. And they would hear things and learn things about God that maybe they hadn't been thinking about. Now another thing to point out about this psalm of Asaph is he really likes the word people. In fact, you'll see that in all of Asaph's psalms. This word or this idea of people 
My people, God's people, keeps coming up over and over and over because Asaph would stand, and I don't know if it was like this where he was standing on a stage or what, but he was always thinking about the people. And as he was leading the worship and as he was writing these songs for people, he was thinking about them as a collective people before God. In fact, even the words righteousness and justice are about people. We've talked about that, right? Righteousness just means being in right relationship with other people. Justice just means treating other people with dignity, with equity, with respect. And it's almost as if Asaph is trying to help us see that when we come to worship and when we come to spend our time with God, that we sing these songs and these songs are not just about me and God. We don't come here just to say some nice things about God and hope that God gives us some nice feelings about him. For Asaph, we come as a people, not as individuals. And that's challenging for us, right? Because we live in a very individualistic culture. I mean, we have this tendency to think that we all have a personal relationship with God, right? That's very individualistic. In fact, oftentimes when we come to church, it's easy to think that we sing songs or we worship. It's just about me and God, and it's this private sort of individual sort of touch point between me and God. And it's almost like Asaph wants to push back on that, and he wants to remind us, God is over the whole earth, and you are part of his people, You're not just individuals, you're part of a community of people and that he's a God of justice, which means you are to love and to serve and show compassion to other people and forgive other people and reconcile with other people. It's almost like a radical reorientation of worship, away from a very individualistic thing and towards a more collective or communal thing. You see what I think? Asaph wanted to do with these songs that he wrote and that the Hebrew people sang over and over and maybe that we're reading today is for God to begin to transform us from individuals to a people, from persons that gather to just talk about God or think about God or pray to God to a people that gathers together to be the people of God. Now, there's one more thing I want to show you about Asaph and what he thinks through this psalm. Look at the next lines, um, and this is still God speaking in the psalm. This is what God says through Asaph. He says, listen, my people, there it is again, and I will speak. I will testify against you, Israel. I am God, your God. I bring no charges against you concerning your sacrifices or concerning your burnt offerings, which are ever before me. So he's referring to in Jerusalem, in the front of the temple or the tabernacle, people would bring these bulls and these goats and all these animals that they would always be slaughtering and sacrificing to God and burning on the altar. And God says, I have no need of a bull from your stall or of goats from your pens, for every animal of the forest is mine. And the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and the insects in the fields are mine, even the mosquitoes. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all that is in it. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? And this is such an important passage because it's almost like God is saying through Asaph, I'm not like the other gods that other people 
worship. You don't need to feed me. You don't need to give things to me. Sacrifices aren't about giving me something that I need and then in response, because you gave me something I need, now I give you something you need. And that's really important. Because the tendency in the ancient world was to believe that all the gods were angry or all the gods were hungry or all the gods were like tyrants and somehow we needed to appease them. That when we came to worship, we were coming to give them something to appease them. And I don't think that's just a tendency in the ancient world. I think that's still a tendency for us today. To almost be like accountants when we approach God. God needs us to appease him, to give him something that he needs, and in return, he'll give us something that we need. Uh, There are some popular preachers um, who might say it this way, God needs your money, right? And if you give him your money, and the more money you give him, the more that he'll bless you. If you ever hear that message, I think you can just come right back to Psalm 50 where God's like, I don't need any of your stuff. I don't need it. And, and God has a sense of humor because he even says, and by the way, if I was hungry, do you think I would tell you, right? Like, I don't, I don't need any of your stuff and I'm not hungry and I don't need anything that you think you're giving me. But this isn't just about the TV preachers who want you to give God or really them your money, right? I think we all still have the tendency to be like accountants when we approach God. For our relationship to be more transactional in nature. I give God what he needs and he gives me what I need. I come to church on Sunday because apparently God needs me to do that. And then he'll take care of me on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, right? Or we come and we sing songs about him and we say a whole bunch of nice things about him because apparently God is kind of insecure and he lacks confidence and he's got this self-esteem issue. So he needs us weekly to tell him all sorts of nice things about him. And if we tell him how awesome he is, then he'll do a whole bunch of nice things for us. I mean, don't we do that? Sometimes we would never admit it, but in the depths of our heart, don't we sometimes do things for God in hopes that He'll then do something in response back for us? And it's almost like God is saying through Asaph, Look, for starters, I don't really need anything. So when you come to me, don't come thinking that I need something that you have and I have this deficit and you're going to somehow. Meet it. The whole world is mine. Like everything is mine. And when you come to church on Sunday, don't come thinking you're going to give me something that I need so that then I can give you something that you need. If you do that, then you've basically missed the whole point of worship. You've missed the whole point of why you even gather with other people in the first place, which I think causes us to step back and say, okay, well, what is the point then? I mean, why do we gather? What is worship all about? If it's not supposed to be transactional, and I get that, what is it supposed to be? And Asaph answers that in the next line. Here's what God says he wants. Sacrifice, thank offerings to God. 
Fulfill your vows to the Most High and call on me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you will honor me. God's basically saying, look, it's really simple. In fact, I can just boil it down to three things. Uh, one, be grateful. When you show up to worship me, just be grateful. I mean, it's nice that you bring all these sacrifices to me, all these animals, and there was a place for that and a purpose for that. And we'll talk about that some other time. But God basically is saying, what I really want you to do is bring thank sacrifices or thank offerings. I want you to show up and remember all of the things that I've done for you this week. I want you to realize that I gave you the breath that you're breathing, that, that I've given you the life that continues to sustain you. And I just want you to gather and be thankful together. That's what worship is about. It's also about, number two, fulfill your vows. Just do what you say you're going to do. And this gets back to that justice piece. When you show up and you talk about how much I've loved you and how much you want to love and you should show that love and that justice to other people, go do it. And this is the prophetic part of Asaph saying, worship is not just about what we do in this building in this hour. Worship is then about what we take outside of the building and how we live our lives. We don't just say things. We don't just pray things. We don't just sing things. We actually go and do things. Don't just say we're going to do something and then don't go do it. That's not worship. Do what you say you're going to do. And then third, call on me when you're in trouble. That's worship too. When you've had a really crappy week, come here and call out to me. When you're going through a really difficult season, bring that to me. When life is spinning out of control, when you're anxious, we all bring anxieties. Bring those to God. When you're angry, bring your anger to God. When you're afraid, bring your fears to God. Whatever it is, whatever trouble you have, bring that to you. That's what true worship is about. It's almost as if God is making it really, really clear. Look, I'm not looking for accountants, I'm not looking for people who come in and think that they're going to get something out of it because they have something to offer. And here's the truth. Almost all of us start our relationship with God that way. We kind of start it thinking about what we're going to give to him and then hopefully what he'll give us back in return. And the deal is God is so gracious and merciful, he still accepts us that way. It's like he says, come on. We can start there. I still love you and I still accept you and you don't really get it and you're an accountant and you're trying to do this transaction with me and if that's where we have to start, then that's where we have to start. But eventually what I wanna do is transform you from an accountant into a true worshiper, into a group of people who come together and offer their thanks to me, into a group of people who come together and say, we're gonna do what we say we're gonna do, into a group of people who come together and when they're in trouble, they call out to me together. See, I think God wants to take our ordinary offerings and do extraordinary things. He wants us to start seeing ourselves not as just individual persons, but as a people and he doesn't want us to be accountants. He wants us to be true worshipers. And so which of those challenges you today? Maybe you're here and you kind of see yourself as a nobody. I don't have much to offer. Maybe you need to be reminded, God can do something and wants to do something extraordinary through you. And you just need to believe that. 
Or maybe you're here and, and you say, yeah, I'm kind of like one of those individuals. Even with church, in the most practical way, I just sort of attend church here, but I'm not sure this is my community or these are my people. Maybe God is saying, like, make these your people. And if this isn't your people, find your people. But you need a people. You're not an individual. You need a community to be a part of. Or maybe you're here and you'd have to admit, yeah, I'm, I've, I've been pretty transactional lately. And the way I talk to God and the way I think about God and the way I approach God, it's very transactional. And I don't want to be that way anymore. And I don't know what the answer is for you and I don't know what change looks like in your life, but I would just say don't leave today without naming that and saying, I don't want to be that anymore. What do I need to do, God, to be more grateful <laughs> To, to be a part of this group of people that gathers and decides we're going to do what we say we're going to do and to call out to you in my day of trouble. I hope you'll think about those truths. And as we go through this series in the words of Asaph and the songs of Asaph, I hope you'll be open to letting his words challenge and transform you. Let me pray for us. <clears throat> Father God, <clears throat> Thank you for this man um, who played the cymbals uh, thousands of years ago and the way that he um, leads us still today. And uh, I pray that your spirit, um, in whatever way that you've spoken to each of us, uh, that you would give us the courage to believe the words we've heard in our hearts. You give us the courage to not leave here um, unchanged you give us the courage that if we need to make um, commitments uh, to you, to make those commitments and then figure out how to live by them. And God, maybe they're not commitments, maybe they're just places of surrender that we need to hand over to you. Um, whatever it is, God, we come to you this morning um, trusting in your power and in your grace. I pray this in your name. Amen.